Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. This podcast is co-organised in collaboration with the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Trade and Investment. And in this latest podcast for one night only, Trade Bites becomes Trade Megabytes as we turn our attention to the rapidly emerging area of digital trade. There isn't very much that happens in the commercial arena these days that doesn't involve the internet at some level or other. You certainly wouldn't be listening to this podcast without it. But when digital services and payments for those services can travel around the globe in a split second, how can we be sure that digital trade is regulated in a way which is fair for all and does not have to cope with unnecessary trade barriers? Traditional types of trade are, of course, regulated by the World Trade Organization, under rules which mostly date from 1995, a time when data exchanges were accompanied by the screech of a modem and were measured in kilobytes. So it's perhaps not surprising that there are no meaningful global rules in place at the moment to regulate digital trade. But increasingly, as regional trade deals become more common, frameworks are starting to emerge to provide more legal and commercial certainty for those businesses which trade in cyberspace. But what happens when different jurisdictions have rules which aren't compatible with each other? And just how commonly does that scenario occur? To look at these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by a panel of experts who collectively know even more than Wikipedia does about the subject of digital trade. I'm joined by Ingo Borschert, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sussex and Deputy Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. It's also my great pleasure to welcome Eunice Huang, Head of Trade Policy for the Asia-Pacific region at Google, based in Singapore. And welcome also to Johannes Fritz, CEO of the Swiss-based St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. So, Ingo, let's start with the basics. What is digital trade and how important is it? Well, thank you, Chris. Digital trade is very important by any measure. Some estimates have it as roughly a quarter of total world exports. Now, what is digital trade? One going definition is that that's all trade that is digitally ordered and or digitally delivered. So the first part of that is the OECD's definition of international e-commerce. And there are estimates out there that put this at about three and a half trillion dollars. Now, the second part of it, the digitally delivered one, that's largely services. So we think that only services can be digitally delivered, you know, telecommunications, audiovisual services, telecoms and computer services. If we think that about 60% of the global other commercial services is potentially digitally delivered, that would add another two trillion dollars in 2019. So I think overall, we are looking at a ballpark of between five and six trillion dollars. Now that's megabucks, and it's probably still severely underestimated. 
Okay, and so does it make, from perhaps the academic point of view, does it help to make a distinction between that sort of pure digital trade that you mentioned, for example, the exchange of computer programs and digitally enabled trade, stuff like buying stuff on Amazon, for example? It depends. I think helpful with regard to policymaking, perhaps not that much, because digitization is a much more sort of profound change in the way in which we work, consume and trade stuff. And so there are areas that likely require regulatory oversight, such as consumer privacy, protection from online harms, and or liability issues. And these arise equally in the pure digital trade transactions as well as in digitally enabled services. But what is true is that the line of what is a good and what is a service clearly has become much more blurred as digitization has progressed. And that's true from examples ranging from aircraft to smartphones. More and more goods contain services, and goods and services are increasingly bundled up. And these are really rather important for policymaking, because as you alluded to earlier, Chris, as a legacy matter, we still have different rule books for goods and for services. And now that these things become more blurred, you know, that is a challenge for policymaking. Eunice Huang, how do online platforms and, and other businesses like Google use these new technologies like big data analytics, artificial intelligence, to expand digital trade. What are the kind of the emerging parameters in these areas? Thanks, Chris. You know, I think if you think about digital trade, it is fundamentally inclusive trade. The internet has democratized access to global markets. So small businesses, a one-man, one-woman operation from Cambodia to Cameroon can access a global market at low cost. They can find new customers. They can diversify their income sources. But also, I think equally important is digital trade democratizing access to digital tools and technologies that were previously available only to the very largest firms. So I think one very tangible example that we can all relate to, which is one of the oldest and most durable barriers to trade since the Tower of Babel, which is language, right? So with online platforms, it's now easier for businesses to be connected directly to customers, but language barriers remain an impediment to cross-border trade. But we all know that having a website or product offerings in the local language of your target market is very important. So some surveys, for example, have shown that you know, 82% of shoppers are more likely to buy a product if the promotional material is in their own language, makes this whole point about language and trade even more important. So tools like Google Translate, which I think many consumers around the world have used, even for online shopping, really make use of AI and machine learning to help to fill this gap and they enable businesses and consumers to directly communicate with each other. And of course, Google Translate can be a lot of fun as well. Johannes Fritz, how do government policies affect digital trade? We're increasingly hearing about new bilateral regional trade agreements and increasingly there's a digital component to these trade deals. So how are governments approaching these kinds of questions? Hi, Chris, and thanks for having me too. We at the St. Gallen Endowment recently launched an activity tracker in this very field. So the Digital Policy Alert is a tracker that we put out on the web for public use so interested citizens like you or policymakers could get an insight on what's going on out there where governments try to regulate or make policy that affects the digital economy. 
And you allude to uh, bilateral and multilateral agreements that are certainly making, I'm sure we get to as well. But also what we see is that much action is on the national level where we are seeing, you know, areas like in data protection that you're aware of or in taxation, competition law, where we are, again, we have this, Ingo mentioned the blurring of goods and services. We now have this blurring of where does the national boundary start and where does it where does it end in the sense that, you know, a service like Google Translate is directly accessible to all nations. If you have some data protection or privacy requirements, Google, no matter where it says, may be already liable in a very distant country that it never intentionally uh, desired to set up shop in. And so when we say what governments do to affect digital trade, we're not just talking about the classic instruments that we know from goods trade or services trade, like tariffs and the like. But we are talking about a much more complex set of policy choices that really range the entire spectrum of what we know. I think it's important to appreciate just how much policies that affect digital trade transcend the conventional area of trade policymaking. So as you said earlier, Chris, there's this proliferation of preferential trade agreements that have e-commerce chapters or provisions on digital trade. And there's a a new study out there that catalogues over 350 trade agreements and 182 of them have provisions relating to digital trade, so over half. A quite instructive example is drawn from Johannes' digital policy alert. In July 2020, the UK government announced a lowering in the threshold for merger control in the sector of artificial intelligence and cryptographic authentication. So this is not, you know, a lowering of merger thresholds is not your usual typical trade measure. And yet it is hugely important for the way in which digital trade is transacted and progresses. Okay, so we've already touched on this question of data privacy. And this is always something which crops up when we're talking about submitting personal information online. Eunice, I'll ask you about this in a moment from your perspective. But Johannes, how, in your view, can people be reassured that their privacy is not being compromised by digital trade? I mean, here, I think much depends on the locale that you live in. Uh, when you talk about data protection, I think this is very much still a national affair where, you know, for instance, in Europe and the US, you have very, very strong modes of data protection. And uh, for instance, the entire, you may be familiar with the Schrems case where an Austrian law student utilized the legal means that were available to him to essentially, in the end, what took down the EU-US privacy shield was an agreement between the European Union and the United States that data could flow freely between the two trading blocks. So as a private citizen, and depending on your locale, you have a lot of tools to request access to your personal data to understand what's happening with it. And also, in some cases, request deletion, uh, local and possibly even global, depending on other court cases pending. And Eunice, of course, Google is the organization that seems to know everything about everybody. But clearly, it's something that your organization takes very seriously as well. Yes, of course. I think trust is a very critical element to facilitate digital transactions and digital trade. right? So I think it's very interesting that you see 
you know, provisions on data protection and online consumer protection showing up in digital trade agreements that countries have started to negotiate as well. So it first came up in the CPTPP digital rules where you have specific provisions that address online consumer protection and also personal information protection. You know, so for example, in the CPTPP, you know, it requires that countries who are participating in these agreements maintain or adopt consumer protection laws, you know, for possible sort of online fraudulent or deceptive uh, commercial activities and the same for personal information protection. So I think these sort of working in hand in hand sort of with uh, cross-border data flow rules, but also understanding that the trust underlying these transactions is critical to facilitate overall digital trade. And seeing some of these elements popping up in the digital trade agreements, I think is the right approach because these are complementary elements to facilitate the global digital economy. We'll talk some more about trade agreements in a moment. But Ingo, I wanted to ask you about this concept of data privacy adequacy that the EU operates in its trade relationships with other countries. Could you sort of just explain how this works in practice? And if you'll excuse the very obvious pun, is it an adequate way to regulate in this area? Well, that remains to be seen, but you're quite right, Chris. The EU likes to think that there are two different instruments. So on the one hand, the EU has a you know, a wide range of trade agreements that regulate goods, services, e-commerce, and all the rest of it. And then as a separate, with a separate legal vehicle, the EU sets the conditions for cross-border transfer of data in these adequacy decisions. And these adequacy decisions are the outcome of an investigation by the European Commission that is taken unilaterally by the Commission and can also potentially be revoked at short notice without affecting the FTA. The agreement that the UK has with the EU quite recently, as of January 21, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, that's for the first time where the EU has agreed to free data flow provisions in a trade agreement, therefore you know, doing away with this strict separation of data adequacy decisions on the one hand and trade agreements on the other, and the UK has made a big song and dance about it. But we must not be fooled at the end of the day. The conditions under which UK businesses can lawfully transfer personal data to and from the UK depends on the EU's adequacy decision. And that's it. So on the subject of trade agreements, we've talked about the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. We've also talked about CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership earlier. Increasingly, these regional trade agreements are cropping up and they all as we mentioned, have digital provisions within them. I wonder what role do these mechanisms play in sort of establishing benchmarks for digital trade regulation? For example, in Singapore, that is one of the parties to the Digital Economic Partnership Agreement together with Chile and New Zealand. And this is often being held up as being one of the more advanced digital trade agreements. I wonder, are we ever likely to have or move towards a global standard for digital trade regulation? Eunice, I wonder what your view is on that. Thanks, Chris. So there are two questions, right? The first question is really what role do these regional mechanisms play in supporting digital trade? And the answer is, I think trade helps to provide a framework you know, to connect digital economies, to prevent the kind of fragmentation that Johannes was referring to earlier. And really, they do this by connecting the digital economies, enhancing interoperability. 
so that there's more predictability at the end of the day for businesses and there's more clarity on the rules of engagement in the digital economy because ultimately when businesses export or they operate in multiple jurisdictions, they want to have the same set of rules apply to them in every market that they operate in. It's hugely expensive, especially for small businesses to have to comply to different types of rules, regulations in different markets. And that, you know, for small businesses can really be a deal breaker, right, in terms of whether they choose to enter a new market or not. And, uh, you know, if they don't, then, you know, that's a real pity because it does scale back the potential for growth. So I think the way that we see regional trade agreements is really, you know, a sense of a framework to help to reduce this kind of fragmentation, to have more interoperable provisions, and also to build confidence amongst the parties that are involved in these agreements that, you know, digital trade rules are important, and these frameworks and norms are important to put in place to grow the digital economy. Johannes, from your perspective, do you see any kind of convergence in this kind of international standard setting, or do we see perhaps even the opposite? In terms of the convergence of areas here, I think the one we just touched upon, the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement, is certainly the one that is part of a template in its structure and also in its substance, I think, that others can draw from. In terms of bilateral or multilateral accords, I see less of that. It's more usually that you see a standard emerging since, for instance, we all all familiar with the European data protection regime that's for instance, consciously adopted by Latin America and other areas really to get the data adequacy decision in their favor, for instance. So you have more like a unilateral export of certain norms from very important players like the European Union rather than a accord as you have in the Digital Economic Partnership Agreement between Singapore and Chile and New Zealand. Yeah, on global convergence, I mean, I just want to highlight that there are ongoing negotiations on digital trade rules in the WTO amongst a group of 86 WTO members. And that includes most of the major economies, including the US, the EU, China, Russia. And, you know, so these ongoing, I think, if, if there is an agreement, this will probably provide the baseline of what global digital trade rules look like. But at the same time, what we mentioned just now about plurilateral agreements like DEPA or even bilateral arrangements between, say, Singapore and Australia, we see them as complementary to this road to a global consensus, sort of a global digital trade rules, so to speak. You know, it has a long tradition in trade of, you know, building up disciplines in smaller groupings through various platforms and mechanisms, right? So whether it's through regional platforms like the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, APAC, or, you know, sort of true plurilateral agreements like the TPP, I think that these are all very useful sort of tools to eventually lead towards a more global convergence. So what about the newly autonomous United Kingdom as it uh, forges its own post-Brexit trade policy? It's been very keen to promote itself as being somehow ahead of the curve in digital trade. It emphasized the world-leading provisions, which it included in its trade deal with Japan, for example. I wonder, Ingo, to what extent you think Britain is justified in making these claims? And what is the UK's strategy within digital trade? You're right, Chris. I think focusing on the UK-Japan agreement, the CEPA, the Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, for the most part, CEPA largely replicates the current frontier of EU agreements. But it is fair to say that the e-commerce provisions in particular go further than, say, 
the EU-Japan agreement, which is probably the right comparator in that regard. There are provisions on cross-border free flow of data. There's a ban on unjustified localization requirements. There's an article on net neutrality. And there are protections from source code disclosure, just to give you a few examples where you can, you know, rightly say that the UK-Japan agreement really is a frontier. However, with all these fairly hard and meaningful provisions, it's also clear that with SEPA, the UK departs quite noticeably from the EU's digital trade policy approach, which puts much more emphasis, as Johannes earlier alluded to, on data privacy and security. In that UK-Japan agreement, the UK is moving more towards the Asia-Pacific and the US-style approach, which is more market-based and more business-oriented, probably. And I think that there's a risk and a huge opportunity here. Now, the risk is that juggling and as it were, reconciling these different approaches could become difficult for the UK. Now, at the risk of being provocative, the UK could become the new Japan. So Japan is the only economy who has an agreement, including digital trade provisions, with all the major digital realms. That is, Japan has an agreement with the EU, with the UK, with the US, and with China. And Japan has promised different things to these trading partners in regard to data flows. And, you know, some people think that that might turn out into a problem or into a headache at some point. So juggling this will certainly not be easy for UK policymakers. At the same time, there's a huge opportunity. The UK is among some middle-sized economies, such as Canada, who are very good at trading digitally and are in a good position to broker, you know, be at the forefront of digital trade policymaking. But the catch here is not to have one agreement that is super deep with one partner and then lose everybody else. But in coming up with and brokering solutions that are both ambitious and interoperable across the different frameworks. And I think that's a very important aspect that Eunice alluded to earlier. Clearly, there are trade-offs between the needs of businesses, between the needs of consumers, governments, public policy objectives. And as we sort of move towards wrapping up our podcast today, I just wanted to ask each of you in turn, how do you think these conflicts will ultimately be resolved? What's the direction of travel in trying to reconcile these issues? What are the mega trends that we can see? And perhaps to put in a provocative question of my own, you know, do the big multinationals always get their own way in the end? Perhaps Eunice, if I can ask for your view on that. I think we shouldn't see this as a zero-sum game, right? I mean, digital transformation, digital tools, technologies can help in the achievement and pursuit of many important public policy objectives. So when we talk about raising overall economic productivity, where we talk about you know, sort of enabling more economic opportunities for small businesses, for minorities, for women, you know, sort of improving accessibility, right, of the disabled to the economy. I think digital plays a very huge part in lifting some of these public policy objectives and enabling governments to work through that. And in the course of my work, I have been looking at, you know, sort of digital policies across the Asia-Pacific region. And some countries really do stand out in terms of being able to achieve 
a nice balance between creating and enabling digital environment for businesses to thrive while also taking care of their national and public policy objectives. So not because I'm Singaporean, but Singapore, I think, has done a really nice job over there, becoming a real digital hub, I think, within the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, New Zealand is another example. So some of the trends and commonalities that I see in terms of you know, how these governments have navigated the trade-offs, I think three key points. The first one really is the close partnership and consultation with many stakeholders, including businesses. And, you know, in in the digital space where technologies evolve so quickly, you know, this is especially important given the nature of the industry so that, you know, the regulations that are designed are indeed addressing the problem that they seek to solve and also to avoid unintended consequences, right, that could have a drag on innovation, that could introduce more friction in cross-border trade. The second key feature, I think, would be, you know, that these governments tend to have, you know, keep in mind the cross-border trade impact of their domestic digital regulation. So in considering the range of regulatory options that they have, they do pay attention to the potential impact on cross-border trade, on interoperability with other markets. And the last one really is the utilization of a wide array of regulatory tools. So not just hard regulation, but you know, Singapore has regulatory sandboxes for emerging areas like fintech on AI, for example, so I think at the end of the day, you know, uh, governments and businesses must really work together to create this kind of enabling environment for digital trade and the digital economy to thrive. Maybe just a final point about this business's question. When you talk about actually improving digital regulation or, you know, improving or injecting more transparency into digital trade, like what Johannes is doing, I think the biggest beneficiaries are arguably the small businesses, which make up 90% of businesses in most economies. Because, you know, like what I mentioned earlier, interoperability between markets can be a sort of prohibitive for SMBs to comply with. And also, you know, in terms of Transparency, I think this really benefits small businesses that may not have the resources or manpower to track what is going on in every economy and to, to comply with all the different regulations. So a company like Google can have many employees doing all these tracking, but you know, sort of small businesses really benefit when the overall ecosystem is improved. Johannes, do you see the interoperability on an improving track overall? To me, yeah, it's Given the flurry of action that we see when I'm monitoring for a digital policy alert, I think to Eunice's point, it's not just maybe small, but also medium and larger companies that are just noticing that lots of activities going on and they are unsure as to how interoperable everything is. And when they enter a new market, whether they are subjecting themselves to some liability or other. And so I mean, my call also would be very is tangent to what Eunice was saying, the sense of transparency, I think is key that you... And that's what we are trying to provide as a digital policy alert, transparency. So, yeah, you can involve stakeholders early. And just as a as one, I think, one example where this has worked or is apparently working quite well recently, not commenting on the substance, but the UK online safety bill that was launched, I think, is interesting because it tries very clearly to communicate political intent. I mean, we'll have some deliberation around this in the pre-legislative process that's now starting. But also, I think it was very interesting in that legislation as we put forward was that they supplied with an impact assessment. Now, this is a model. They uh, try to estimate how much it will cost and you know what the burdens are. And one can always dispute models, but I allowed them for the effort to communicate 
not just their intent, but the way they thought about how they get from one action to a desired outcome. And that will allow, you know, engaging the stakeholders much better than, you know, if it's happening in the opaque. Ingo, last word from you. I'd like to echo what Eunice just said about that, you know, good governments in the direction of travel, I guess, of good governments, in my view, is that they consider the trade impacts of their domestic digital economy regulation. I think a number of governments now have artificial intelligence national strategies. The UK and a couple of other governments have a national data strategy. And I think that's a way forward. And it does indeed require a whole lot of cross-governmental coordination and liaison. But let me break this big and complex question of a trade-off between business needs and national or public policy objectives into two concrete examples. And one is indeed artificial intelligence. You know, for artificial intelligence to work, they need these systems require access to vast quantities of data. But at the same time, these data are often rightly protected by intellectual property rights. It's copyright, trade secrets law. And there's a trade-off between commercial interests on the one hand and the public mandate to govern artificial intelligence, including human rights protection, you know, safeguarding against biases and other aspects of public safety. And these are really, really tough decisions that lie ahead of us. And, you know, no one really has a silver bullet. A related aspect is this set of latest provisions that we see in trade agreements about source code disclosure and algorithms. That's really at the moment the frontier. There's a clear and legitimate business interest in having their source code protected. But yet at the same time, there's a wide range of possible motivations for government-mandated source code disclosure, all the way from traditional needs, for instance, in competition law cases, over procurement needs to promoting innovation and economic development. But I think the key really is that whatever a government sees fit in these concrete trade-offs, the trade implications are duly recognized you know, before making trade policy. And it should probably not be underestimated the difficulty of keeping track in terms of regulating a sector where the technological innovations are advancing so quickly. It's a huge subject and I fear we have only skated over the surface, but there we have to leave the debate for today. So thank you very much indeed to my excellent guests, to Ingo Borschert, to Eunice Huang and to Johannes Fritz. And as always, thanks very much to all of you for listening in. So please do join us again next time for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.